All right. You can open your Bibles, if you will, to First um, Peter. We have been uh, over a year in First Peter. We finish today. Uh, I counted this is the 39th message on First Peter. Before we actually dive into that, I just want to address your attention to the bulletin a little bit. There's really no um, much of it you know about. Just uh, two things. Flocks tonight, we, uh, we're going to meet together, not at the Dirks home. That one's been canceled, but we're going to meet at, um, at uh, the Landman's house and really to apply the sermon mentioned today, maybe even going back the sermon the last couple of weeks, talking about anxiety, talking about Satan. And uh, Mark and Phil will be leading that. Also, oratorio, that's to put on the radar screen for your parents. I know that uh, some of you don't even know what this is. It's an opportunity for your kids to memorize things, allow them to quote them before a, uh, a nursing home setting to just reach out to the, the folks there who need and desperately want visitors. Also, I did want to mention that many of you know we had a handful of women at church attend the True Women Conference uh, this past week. Uh, I think there were seven women who attended. Yvonne came back just beaming, had a, had a great time. Um, told me not all about it. You certainly can't tell all about it, but told me some about it. And, uh, in fact, she has put some CDs back there. Just pull them off the Internet, produce CDs free if you want to just take them. I know Adriana's put some things back there as well. Just lots of resources for you women if you just want to take something and uh, see what was there. But one of the things that Yvonne showed me was this little, this little brochure. It's called a, a True Woman Manifesto that the leaders of this uh, group or movement or the organizers of this event really wanted to put together to um, to call all women to embrace. And uh, really, at one point in the conference, they gave a copy of this to every woman there, read it verbally out loud, gave them an opportunity to respond orally to, yes, I believe these things. Yes, I'll make these things a commitment in my, my life. Also, there was a little tear-off portion. They could sign it, tear-off it portion, sign it. So 6,000 women uh, really signed this. And, and it's really encouraging if you just read this can't read the whole thing, and this isn't a woman's conference, okay? But one thing I do want to do is kind of give you a flavor of this document. It speaks right, right from the very start about how men and women were created perfect, how they, they fell in sin, and how Christ is really our, our only hope. It addresses the authority of Scripture. It addresses the sanctifying work of the Gospel. It addresses the needed power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It addresses the role of women as... Uh, to be honoring and supporting of God-ordained male leadership in the home and the church. It addresses the issue of marriage. It addresses the issue of life. It addresses the issue of children. And, and then, I want to read one paragraph for you. It addresses, interestingly enough, the issue of suffering. And uh, Yvonne told me that as she listened to messages, so many of these women who are speaking these things spoke about suffering. And it's really, I think, good because a call of a Christian is a life of suffering, as we have seen. But I want to read this for you because it really summarizes the message of First Peter. It says, Suffering is an inevitable reality in a fallen world. At times, we will be called to suffer for doing what is good, looking to the heavenly reward rather than the earthly comfort. For the sake of the gospel and the advancement of Christ's kingdom. What does that sound like? It sounds like First Peter, doesn't it? 
Suffering is an inevitable reality in a fallen world. At times, we'll be called to suffer for doing what is good. Looking to the heavenly reward. That's why we sing when we all get to heaven. Just That's where our reward needs to be. That's where our hope needs to be. That's where we need to look. Looking to our heavenly reward rather than earthly comfort. For the sake of the gospel and the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Well, it addressed suffering head on. It addressed suffering right on. See, God's plan in this life is for us to suffer. If we have spent time with Peter this past year, we have learned one thing. What is it? Suffer now, glory later. And you know, here's what I think has been interesting. So I pounded that this past year. I don't think there's a child in this room who will ever forget that. I mean, they will be dying at 85 in a nursing home someplace saying, you know, their, their recent memory they can't remember, but they can remember back to the time where Pastor Brandon in Rock Valley Bible Church was teaching about suffer now, glory later. And, and my prayer and my hope is that when I'm long gone, even these kids on their, dead, on their deathbed suffering are going to realize that glory is later because of their hope and trust in Christ. Right? That's what my hope has been, just pounding that in us this year. The reality of life is that we will suffer, but to those who believe God, He's got a, a greater plan than the suffering that will ultimately bring us into His great joy. Well, trouble and hardship and difficulty and suffering abound in this life. Job says, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upwards. You've seen a campfire. You see the sparks just kind of fly upwards. You know, that's man. We are born for trouble. But for a believer in Christ, it's not doom and gloom. For a believer in Christ, we can anticipate a glory in heaven that is so great that it makes all of this suffering that we experience here on earth pale in comparison. As I read um, my Scripture reading time, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And, and that's Paul talking about his sufferings. You want to read his sufferings, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It talks about the sufferings that he had. His sufferings are great. I think it's in uh, 2 Corinthians 4. He talks about how we are distressed, persecuted. 2 Corinthians 6 maybe. And distressed all the time. We are, we are sorrowful, yet what? Always rejoicing because He knew of the great glories that were going to come to Him. Elsewhere He said, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. It's a message of 1 Peter. It's a message of the Bible. We suffer now, but our glory is later in Christ. Well, as we come to the last five verses here in First Peter, we're going to again see suffer now, glory later. Actually, it's a perfect message by which we can summarize the whole book of First Peter. I'm going to spend a lot of time surveying and reviewing again what First Peter is talking about because he's ending the epistle the same way he began the epistle, the same way he went through the whole epistle. Edmund Clowney said, Peter closed his letter as he began it, rejoicing in the royal grace of God in Christ. The hope that will sustain the church in its fiery trial of suffering is hope in the sovereign grace of God. My message this morning is entitled, Suffer Now, Glory Later, Revisited. For the last time. One last time in First Peter, so please bear with me one more time. Suffer Now, Glory Later. First Peter 5.10, Peter says this, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. 
Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. I trust you can see Peter's theme here in verse 10. Verse 10, we see both the suffering and the glory. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will perfect you, confirm you, strengthen you, establish you. God of all grace who calls you to glory. After you've suffered, you're being brought into His glory. Well, my first point is simply this. You will suffer. It's the first half of verse 10. It's the reality of the Christian life. Peter's assumption is that you will suffer. He doesn't say here... If you will suffer, he says, after you have suffered, meaning that you will suffer. This has been his theme throughout the entire epistle. In fact, turn back to chapter 1, verse 6. You see there, even Peter talking about the, the, the sufferings that we will face. He calls them various trials. You're rejoicing in the salvation you have because even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. These are multicolored trials, multifaceted trials, wide-ranging and diverse. They may come from different sources. They may come from your flesh. They may come from those in the world, outside the church. They may come from those in the church. And yes, even from your own family they may come. They vary in scope and intensity. Some will be deep and long-lasting. And some will be just quickly in your life today and gone tomorrow. That's what Peter calls them various. They're multi Colored. Everyone's suffering is different. Your suffering is different than my suffering. And my suffering is different than other people's suffering. Everyone has a different sort of suffering in this life. But suffer we will. And after beginning his epistle in chapter 1, verse 6, talking about these sufferings in general, then he goes through, Peter does, and begins to give you some specific examples of how it is that people might suffer. And this is just touching the, the, the tip of the iceberg but it really is beginning to touch many of them. Chapter 2, verse 11, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. And there you see that your suffering is coming from your lust, coming from your, your flesh. And Peter describes the pain as a time of war. War is never a pleasant time. War is always a sorrowful, suffering, painful time. And Peter here pictures a Christian life as a A life of war filled with unpleasantries as we take out our bazookas and we shoot at the flesh in which we live, fighting against the war within. And this battle is particularly true and apparent for believers who have trusted in Christ and want to walk in a way that pleases the Lord. For those who don't believe, it doesn't matter how they live. They can live in the lust of their flesh. But for us who have a conscience pricked by God, and who know what our sins cost Christ, don't want to walk in those sins anymore, but rather want to please the Lord, and yet we have the pull of the flesh pulling us back this way, and it causes great suffering, anxiety, and toil, tribulation in our flesh. It's a battle. It's a war. It's real. And then the next verse, even he goes on to talk about other sufferings. It might come from the Gentiles. That is, it might come from those outside the church, non-Christians. They may, as it says there in verse 12, slander you as evil doers. Though you are doing good, and they observe them, today they are slandering you as an evildoer. You know, Peter's identifying the sort of suffering that comes from those around us. It could be our neighbors, it could be our co-workers, it could be our classmates, it could be your unbelieving family members, it could be your bowling buddies, 
I mean, it could be lots of different people, lots of different sources. Peter describes you doing good things and being slandered for it. They're calling you evil because you're doing what's right. You, you go to church and they ridicule you because you're not going to join them on the golf course. <laughs> Why are you going to church? Look at this beautiful day. What is today? Going to be like a high of 72 today? It's a perfect day for golf. And yet, they may slander you, make fun of you. And you say, well, I have a higher priority in life. Ah, goody two-shoes, whatever. They might, might make fun of you. You homeschool your children. And they say, what are you trying to do? Indoctrinate your children? They're going to be out of touch with the world. They're going to be antisocial. Let them come. You're doing a good thing. You spank your children. Oh, you're a child abuser. You know, and these accusations come. What a wicked person you are. You're going to spank your kids? Well, you're doing what is right. And they're slandering you and you're suffering for it. You're trusting that maybe, perhaps one day, they'll glorify God as they see the truth and the light. You share the gospel with them and they're offended at Christ because Christ is a stumbling stone. They call you a narrow-minded bigot. It's okay. You continue to do what's right and you may suffer for it. You walk in the righteous path and difficulties are all around. And then chapter 2, verse 13, Peter begins to speak about the uh, human institution, governments, kings, ones in authority. And, and though it doesn't explicitly mention here, if you know the context of the day, persecution against Christians was vamping up, especially among the, um, the government, forcing Christians then to bow down to Caesar and call him Lord. And so the suffering was, was coming up there. And it was probably the case that those who received the letter were facing some opposition from the government, maybe ungodly laws, maybe some persecution for embracing this new religion and denying the pantheon of gods. Chapter 2, verse 18, suffering comes again about servants being submissive to your masters, not only to those who are good, it's easy to submit to those, but even to those who are unreasonable. And the implication there is that there's some suffering taken on with your, your master. The application for us today is... Employers and employees, you know, submit to our bosses with all respect, even when it's hard, even when we suffer for it. There may be instances in which you suffer. I think about a boss maybe compelling you to overtime when uh, you're swamped and you're buried and you've got to do that. Your boss may refuse you vacation time due to work that's coming in. You want to go with your family and yet he says, no, you've got to stay here. The workload is too big. Now, in our culture today, maybe that's not going on, the Stock market going down. But that does happen sometimes. I know that that was a difficulty for me sometimes. I worked in the computer world. Maybe because you're a Christian profession, they hold you to a higher standard, an unreasonably high standard. Oh, you're the Christian, are you? You could face some persecution at work because of that. Maybe your boss is demanding something unethical of you and you make a stand and it's very difficult then. Suffering might come. But whatever you experience, an employer, it's nothing compared to what... Um, what slaves faced back then. I mean, he's talking about slaves here. Your employment is voluntary. You can always go and get another job, but a slave had no choice. He had to submit himself to his master. It's far worse than what you have. Chapter 3, Peter addresses the issue with wives living with unbelieving husbands and the suffering that comes about in that case. And again, just it's another example. It goes not only from work, it, it goes to government, it goes from your flesh, it goes from non-Christians and even right here into your family. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the Word, 
They may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. They observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So that even if your husband is disobedient, you're called to a life of still submitting to him, realizing that it's going to be your good deeds ultimately that may convert him. You can be one without a word. It doesn't mean you don't preach the gospel to him. It means the gospel has been preached to him. He knows it and now you're living it before him. But in the living of it, there is suffering. A mixed marriage is a recipe for suffering. Different worldviews in the home. What do you do with your money? Do we give it to the church and Christian causes and missions or do we spend it on ourselves? The conflict's about priorities. Should I go to church without you? Can I go to church without you? You're going to come with me. Sunday mornings, rips a family apart. Conflicts of time. How are we going to spend our days? With the people of God or in our own pleasures? Conflicts about our children. How are we going to raise our kids? Are we going to put them in Christian schools or not? The husband says, no, absolutely not. I've got to put them in the world. And you see some influences come home and you do whatever you can do to try to help your kids in that way. There's disagreement in the home. It's difficult. And along with the conflict comes agony of soul when you realize the one you're living next to perhaps won't spend eternity with you. Great suffering in the home. And then Peter begins to get general. Chapter 3, verse 9 talks about people who are having evil come upon you or insult. How do you deal with that? You're on the receiving end of that. You don't, don't return evil for evil or insult for insult. In verse 14, he talks about suffering for the sake of righteousness. In verse 16, he mentions being slandered. In verse 17, he mentions just general suffering for doing what is right. And these, it's just, it's just general sufferings that Peter's talking about. You know, and this is where we can apply it all to us. What kind of sufferings do you have in this day and age, in this time, this place where you are? It might not be at work. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and not working. Right? may not be in your marriage because you both are walking with Christ and loving Him. Maybe not be with the government, but maybe there are other things in your life you're battling with. The flesh, relationships, whatever. The suffering does come and it's real. And his theme continues on. Verse 4 of chapter 4, he speaks about how the time already passed where you used to live is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles in your sinful living. And you won't join with them anymore. And if you don't join with them anymore, it says in chapter 4, verse 4, in all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them into these areas of dissipation. And they say, you used to join us, but you won't join us anymore. And so as a result, they malign you. So it says in chapter 4, verse 4, when Christ comes in your life, you don't want to be involved in those things. And as you purge yourself from those things and former friends and former activities because of the, the badness for those things in your soul, those very people can come after you and come chide you and malign you that you're not being involved with them. They are surprised you don't run, but we ought not to be surprised when sufferings come. And chapter 4, verses 12 to 15 are, are all about Peter trying to convince us that suffering is our lot in life. It says in verse 12, Do not be surprised that you are suffering what he says. Don't be surprised at this fiery ordeal that comes upon you for your testing. As though some strange thing were happening to you. Like you, you ought not to be surprised when this, is happen, when this suffering is coming. And then he gives a hope. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, he says, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, he says you're blessed because God's 
spirit and his glory is upon you. Just make sure that you don't suffer as a murderer, thief, or evildoer, or troublesome meddler. But then he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in the name of Christ. And, and then he says, listen, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. In, in other words, it's going to come. Things are going to come hard on the household of God. It's going to come hard on the church. And he says, if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's going to be different for those out there. And then he quotes the Proverbs. If it is with difficulty that the righteous are saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? He's just talking about it is with difficulty that the righteous are saved. And then he finally says, therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing this right. That's what we ought to do in our suffering. Entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what's right. That's what Christ did when he suffered. Chapter 2, verse 23. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. While he was suffering, he had no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He kept giving himself to the Lord. And that's what we'll see here we need to do. The Christian life is a, a life of suffering. And throughout the letter, we, we see allusions to the, the work of Christ on our behalf. Chapter 2, verse 24, we see that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you're healed. Christ suffered bearing our sins in His body on the cross. The suffering of our life is like the suffering of Christ. He suffered and we are called to follow Him. We, ought to, we suffer as well. In 1 Peter 3.18, even talks about how uh, how Christ also died for sins, the, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. The righteous for the unrighteous. And He was suffering righteously. He, he, he did righteously. He suffered for the sake of righteousness, to use Peter's phrase elsewhere. And there's Christ suffering for us. And our hope in our suffering is that we have one who will redeem us through our suffering. He says in chapter 1, verse 18, that we have been redeemed, not with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but we have been redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And that's our hope and our suffering, is that we have been redeemed, we have been set free, our sins have been forgiven because they've been nailed to the cross. And our very path through which we are saved from our sins is a very example for us to follow in our sufferings. Just as Christ died for our sins, that becomes the example of how it is that we ought to live. Chapter 2, verse 21, Christ Himself is our example, having suffered for us, leaving its example for us to follow in His steps. And I rejoice that verse 25 of chapter 2 says that though we were continually straying, we've turned to the shepherd and guardian of our souls because He's brought us back. That is how we endure suffering. That is the way of the Christian life. It is the cross. The way of cross is the way of suffering. But, but here, what, what Peter says here in chapter 5, verse 10, is that we need to keep it all in perspective. Peter calls all of our suffering a little bit. Right? All the suffering that we experience is just a little bit. Look what he says. After you have suffered... For a little while. Just a little bit. Last week, I, I made mention of this book, Jesus Freaks. I want to read a couple instances of 
from this book to you this morning to maybe encourage you that our suffering is for a little while and it's appropriate points along the way. I want to tell you, and this again, is we're going to read this to our kids. We're reading some other books right now, but within the month probably we'll finish those books and then, uh, then we get to this book to read out loud in family worship time. But this was written, and these are just vignettes, I think a hundred different stories of different people who suffered. This was written about a young girl. I don't know how young. Maybe, Jared, how old are you? You're like nine. Maybe nine years old. Maybe, Carissa, you're 14, right? Maybe 14. A young girl. All right? Maybe your age, Krista. You're 18. Maybe 18. A young girl. A Chinese girl who's a Christian refused to betray the secrets of the underground church even though she had been tortured again and again. Where's Rock Valley Bible Church meeting Krista? I'm not going to tell you. So you get beaten. Young, young girls, children, be strong in Christ when you're young. You can do it. Trusting the Lord. She said, how can you bear with so much suffering? She said this, it was not hard. She replied, I had been taught by my pastor that the real torture lasts very little. For one minute of torture, there are ten minutes of glancing at the enraged faces and the implements of pain. You know, they got you on the table there and you're looking around at their faces, these men who are angry with you and and their sticks there that they're going to beat you with and the anticipation as much as the pain. And so she said, I decided to keep my eyes closed the whole time. I did not see the stick before it hit me or afterwards. The suffering was much reduced. That's just an example. What helped this young Chinese girl during the Red Guard era, 1966-1969, what is it that helped her through a trial? It's that the suffering just for a little while. Her pastor said, hey, listen, they're only going to beat you for a minute. Okay, Your body can't handle longer than that. I can handle a minute. So she said, okay, I'm just going to shut my eyes and endure it. And uh, later the story goes on to say that when the guards found out what she was doing, they taped her eyes open. But she said she had seen so much of Jesus before she was seeing Jesus now, even with her eyes open. But she understood that the suffering is only for a little while. And in reality, listen, every any suffering you're going to experience here on earth is only going to be a little while. Your former friends who are maligning you, they'll soon disappear from your life. Those who revile you and slander you, they will come to ruin themselves. Proverbs 6 makes it clear. A worthless person, a wicked man, the one who walks with a perverse mouth, his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly he'll be broken and there'll be no healing. God will take care of the one who's slandering you. You don't worry about it. It's only going to be a short time. God will wipe him away. You suffer at the hands of a poor employer, just wait a little bit. You might get a new supervisor, right, Betty? You might get a new supervisor. Or you might find another job. How long is that going to take? A couple months? A couple years maybe? It's okay. In our country, we elect a new government every four years. So how bad can it be? If it's bad, just wait four years. Four years isn't very long. That's why Peter can say suffer for a little while. Now, there are some forms of suffering that last longer than this. If you're married to an unbeliever, your suffering may last 20 years. It may last 40 years. It may last 50 years. Some of you suffering physically. Your suffering 
may not end until you pass away and go and be with Christ. But in light of eternity, 20, 40, 30 years, 40, 50 years, how much is that in light of eternity? Listen, it's not very much. It may seem like a lot now, but it is not very long. There is significance to Jesus talking about eternal life. It means that your life we have in Christ will continue forever and ever 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 and ever. And anything compared with eternity is infinitesimally small and short. Even a life of hardship. This momentary light affliction is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, Paul says. Johnny Erickson Tata wrote about her sufferings in light of eternity. She spent the last 40 years of her life in a wheelchair. 40 years in a wheelchair. Can you, can you imagine that? In fact, Ivani said she wasn't at the conference because she's been experiencing some phantom pain of some type. So she had some kind of... Like, she can't, she can't feel, but she's in pain. Something like that. I don't know exactly what. But she, wasn't, but she gave some kind of a videotaped message. Great, great testimony. But she did talk about the suffering in her life. But here's what she wrote. Having spent the last 40 years in her life, she said, Our afflictions have shown us something cosmic is at stake. After just five minutes of heaven, I promise you will make up for everything. Five minutes of heaven will make up for 40 years in a wheelchair suffering as she has. We sang, when we all get to heaven, stanza three, let us then be true and faithful, trusting, serving every day. Just one glimpse of Him in glory will the toils of life repay. Is that it? Just one glimpse of Him. Johnny, it's not five minutes. It's one glimpse of Him will the toils of life repay. Well, this does lead now to my second point where the good news comes. Not only will you suffer, but you will glory is what my second point has here. I know that's not good English. I know that's not... But you get, you get the drift, okay? I want some sense to be parallel. You will suffer. You will glory. There it is in verse 10. After you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Here's the promise. And hear it, loved ones. God will bring you into His eternal glory in Christ. He will do it. Just as your suffering is real, and it real it is, so also will your joy be with Christ forever. That's a great place for an amen, right? And I think I think we missed it here. Just as your suffering is real, and it is real, so also will be your joy with Christ forever. Amen. Listen, it's a sure thing. If you're a believer in Christ, you have a glorious inheritance waiting for you. In chapter 1, verse 4, He speaks about this inheritance which is imperishable. This inheritance is undefiled. This imperishable is unfading. It's it's like this perfect thing that never rusts, never decays, is there perfect and glorious. You can read Revelation 21 and 22 about how glorious our inheritance is in heaven. 
God is the one who called you. He's the one that brought you to Himself. He's the one that will bring you into His eternal glory. And this is so sure. Look what He says at the end of verse 10. God will get you into His eternal glory by perfecting you, confirming you, strengthening you, and establishing you. Four words, just even speaking there, about the ways in which God is is working. Perfect, confirm, strengthen, establish. They're synonyms. There's only a subtle difference between these words. And you can see that in the translations. Every single major translation, they disagree on all these words. Just arranging them a different way. But they all have the same idea. Perfect, restore, confirm, strengthen, establish, make strong, firm, steadfast. Just reading all the different words, different translations are. And all saying the same thing. God's the one who's going to perfect you, restore you, establish you, firm you, ground you, make you there. Let's, let's look at these words, alright? There are four words, four synonyms. It helps us to even think about them. First one, perfect you, or he'll restore you. As he'll make you right, he'll fix you. This is the orthopedic word, katartidzo. He will straighten your bones out. Whatever was wrong with your body is going to be made right. Whatever is wrong with your spirit will be made right. You'll be perfected. Second term, he'll confirm you or establish you. It's sterizo, from which we get steroids. He'll make you strong, as the NIV says. It's a reference to physical weaknesses and spiritual weaknesses. All your frailties will be transformed into vitality. All of your doubts will be turned into faith. Third term, it's translated strengthen or make you firm. It's the only place this word occurs in all the Bible. So it's difficult to know exactly what it is, but through other literature and through other word groups, the idea here is standing strong. He's going to plant your feet so strong you're going to be never swayed from His eternal glory. You can't move Him because He's stuck you firm. Last term, establish, settle you, make you steadfast. This comes from the uh, same word, same idea. Same foundation, immovability. He's going to ground you. So you're secure forever in His eternal glory. Uh, let's just say this. Your future in Christ is secure. We read that in Romans chapter 8. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. We are in the love of God in Christ and there's nothing that can take away from that because our feet are cemented in His grace. He can't pull us away. Nobody can pull us away. God is strong and mighty enough to ensure these things come to pass. That's point of verse 11. God is strong enough to make these things go. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, throughout all eternity, God will be worshipped because of His power. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive honor and might and glory and power and blessing. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Alleluia! Salvation and glory and power belongs to our God. Alleluia! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. The echo through eternity. Peter says it here in chapter 5, verse 11. He said it in chapter 4, verse 11. To whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. God is strong. He is powerful enough to guarantee that you will be perfected, confirmed, strengthened, and established. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. Psalm 93, as Mark read for us, the Lord reigns. He is sovereign over all. Though the waves lift up their pounding voice, God is the one who reigns and rules 
No one is able to ward off his hand. Such are the promises of God. And the promise of God is that we will be firm and secure in his kingdom forever. That's how Peter started the epistle. Chapter 1, verse 5. He talked about the inheritance that we would receive. And then he says, who's going to receive it? Those who are protected by the power of God through faith for this salvation ready to reveal the last time. God protects us. Protected by the power of God. And God is powerful enough. He is strong enough to protect us. See, when God brings us forth as spiritual beings in the new birth, He doesn't merely say, okay, I've changed you different and go on your way now. He didn't say that. He protects us. He puts His arms around us. He guides us through life. We saw that last week, right, with Job. He's got a hedge around Job. Peter, Satan has to ask permission in order to touch him because of God's strong hand, His mighty hands. God will be intimately involved in our process of salvation from first to last. It's the promise of the church in Philippi. He who began a good work and He will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. And it's not that God is, is, is off somewhere. Look at verse 10. It says, He Himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That God Himself has got His hands in the midst of your life, guarding and protecting and guiding you. <clears throat> and that's where we find our security. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, said it well. The safety of the baby in the mother's arms is not that the baby clings to the mother, but that the mother holds the baby. Isn't that where our salvation, where our security of our salvation lies? It's because we are in God's hand. We are gripped by Him. He's not going to let go. Last week we considered the, the power of the roaring lion who prowls around looking for someone to devour. His aim is to devour you and, and pull you away. But as powerful as the lion is, the Lord will prevail over him. God is strong enough to protect us from all who would pull us away. That includes the devil like we looked last week. That includes demons sent by him. That includes the governmental authorities. That includes unreasonable masters. That includes unbelieving husbands or wives. That includes those who tempt you to sin. That includes those who slander you, those who insult you, and those who seek to harm you. God is greater than all of them. And the promise here in this verse, He'll keep us until the final day. That's your hope against the roaring lion. That's your hope against the flesh which so easily turns to pride. Listen, your hope in humbling yourself is that God is the one who's going to exalt you, right? By His mighty hand. It says there in chapter 5, verse 6, the mighty hand of God will keep you. Peter begins and ends his letter on the same thing. He begins by saying that God has given this salvation protecting us. And here he ends by saying that God will bring us to His eternal glory. And you say, why does God do this? Why? What? Why would God do this? And it just comes down to one word, grace. Grace. Look what it says here in 1 Peter 5.10. The God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ. It's grace that He called you. You know that? Romans chapter 8, 29-30 speaks about the grace that called us, that justified us. Salvation is all of grace, right? It's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves, a gift of God. So no one would boast because it's not as a result of works. And our security in Christ is all of grace. I can do no better than 
read from Sir Charles. You know who Sir Charles is, right? Spurgeon? Sir Charles Spurgeon? The Prince of Preachers. <clears throat> he says, It is not the God of little graces that we have received already, but the God of great, boundless grace, which is stored up for us in the promise, but which as yet we have not yet received fully in our experience. The God of all grace, of quickening grace, of pardoning grace, of believing grace, the God of comforting grace, supporting grace, sustaining grace. That's the God that holds us and keeps us and protects us and guides us and guards us. And see, God's grace doesn't come just yesterday when He saved us. It's not just today sustaining us, but it's also in the future as He brings us into His eternal glory in Christ. So we look forward to that day in which we will enjoy Him in heaven. That's what sustains us to realize that God is going to keep us through that day. All right, Jesus freaks again. Uh, this is my second example. This is John Bradford, England, 1555. He was a pastor at St. Paul's in London thrown in prison because his beliefs, he was a dissenter, was different than the state church during Queen Mary's reign. In prison, back and forth. And finally, he was burned at the stake for his faith in Christ. He was burned also, was John Leaf, a teenager who refused to deny his faith. How many teenage boys do we have here? Some of you. Would you be burned at the stake for your faith? Would you go along with me to the stake to die? I hope so. I guess I'm really struck by Jesus Freaks. One of the things through this book is you see lots of young people. It's in their youth that people need to fire and vigor for Christ. Anyway, they're walking up to the place where the firewood was. They both fell flat to the ground, prayed for an hour. And then uh, Bradford got up, kissed the piece of firewood where he knew he was going to enter into the joy of his rest. He turned his head as he was strapped there to the, to the pyre. He turned his head to John Leaf, this teenager, and he said, Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord tonight. What's helping him and sustaining him through trials? Is it not the glory that he knows is going to come? Is it not the strengthening hand and the grace of God? And what, what helps these men and these people and these women through trials and struggles and martyrdom, bringing them to martyrdom and torture, listen, it's the same God, it's the same grace is going to help you today in all of your struggles and difficulties and trials and hardships and sufferings. It's the God of all grace. So trust His grace. He's a God of grace. He'll sustain us and keep us through. Well, the reality of Christian life is this. You'll suffer, you'll glory. Now my third point. <clears throat> Stand firm. Comes here in verse 12. Verse 12 really is the beginning of a wrap up. And um, even as wrap up, Peter has some counsel for us. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regarded him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And then we see the grace theme coming, so it's, it's all tying together. That's why I dealt with grace last in verse 10, because I want to tie, tie to. But before we talk here about the true grace of God, let's talk a bit here about Silvanus. I want to give you an idea about this man. It's probably Silas, who accompanied Paul on several journeys. You read about him abundantly in Acts 15 through 19. He's mentioned about a dozen times, going to churches, helping Paul, doing lots of things. Silvanus is probably a long form 
of his name. Uh, like we have Michael, we call him Mike. Or William, we call him Bill. And uh, Silas, Salvanus, different names, same guy. Now, in the beginning of the letter, Peter addressed this, this letter to scattered believers throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's a region in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And um, Salvanus was probably the messenger to deliver this letter. Now, it is interesting here, this audience is large. He's not writing just to five cities. He's writing to five regions. He's writing to, to the people in Turkey. That's <laughs> what he's writing to. Lots of people. And, uh, you know, he couldn't write an email and copy everyone, say, boom, here it is. It was very hard for the number of people to write out that number of copies of First Peter. And so, Salvanus took this letter walked around, went to each of these different regions. Now, when you look on a map, you can see that you know he could have visited all these different regions in order. He could have gone to, to Pontius first, which is kind of up on the northern part of, of Turkey. And then he could have traveled, let's see, northern part of Turkey. And then he could have traveled southeast down to Galatia. And they could have traveled south to Cappadocia and then northwest to Asia and then up north back to Bithynia and back to right where he started then and maybe back on his journey to Rome, probably where Peter wrote this from. And as he was doing that, as he visited these regions, he probably searched out for believers in each city which he visited and found out if there were enough believers to have a church. Some places there probably weren't. But looking for some church of there, and if he got found a church, found a gathering of people, probably read the letter, Maybe took some time to copy the letter. Maybe spent some time with them. Ministered to the saints. Whatever needs there were. It was no accident here that Peter says, so I regard him a faithful brother because he was one who could get the job done. He's one who could be trusted. He's one who could really minister to the people who were there. And now getting to our application here after Sylvanus is going around. He says, listen, this I've written briefly, just short, just five chapters, whatever. It takes 15 minutes to read through out loud. He says, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying. That is, a, that I'm, I'm commanding you some things. I'm giving testimony also in Christ that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God. So, when he, Peter sums up his whole letter, he says, here's what my letter's about. It's about the grace of God. That's what his letter is about. Every exhortation, every truth bearing witness about Christ, it's all the true grace of God. So you think about his letter, you can get this feel. Chapter 1, verse 3. He's caused us to be born again. How does He cause us to be born again? But by His grace and mercy. Chapter 1, verse 4. We've received this inheritance. How can we receive this inheritance? But by His grace. Chapter 1, verse 5. How is it that we're protected by the power of God? It's, it's only by His grace. How is it that we rejoice through our trials? Stained us through our trials? It's only by His grace that that takes place. God's grace will be what will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 14. God's grace gives us a desire to be holy as He is holy. It's God's grace that redeemed us. It's God's grace that made us a spiritual house for holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God. Chapter 2, verse 5. It's God's grace that called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Chapter 2, verse 9. It's God's grace that made us once who were not a people being a people, it's God's grace that caused us who had not received mercy at one time then to receive mercy. It's God's grace that gives us desire to fight this war against the flesh. It's God's grace that sustains us through being slandered for our faith. It's God's 
grace that gives the heart to submit to governing authorities, even if they're ungodly, or to submit to employers who are ungodly. It's God's grace that even makes us bond slaves of God, chapter 2, verse 16. It's God's grace that bore our sins in His body on the cross. It's God's grace that brought us from being straying sheep, chapter 2, verse 25, to being brought back into His fold. And that's just the first two chapters. We could go on and on and on and on about the grace of God in this letter. And in this grace, we are to stand firm. (laughs) It's interesting. Stand firm in grace. Sounds a lot like Paul when he wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ. Say, how, how is it? Well, uh, I think sometimes we can see grace and we can understand grace kind of like mercy. Right? Mercy just kind of lets us go. But, but grace is pretty active. When uh, Riley Hebrews talked about approaching the, the throne of grace so we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's God's grace that helps us in the time of need. God's grace is active. When, when, when Paul spoke in First uh, Corinthians chapter 15 about... How he labored more than all the apostles. He said, not I, but the grace of God in me. See, the grace of God works in us and helps us. And we need to stand firm on trusting and relying upon God to carry us through our sufferings. That's what he's saying. Stand firm in His grace. How can you do this? (laughs) Only by His grace can you stand firm in His grace. I want to tell you the story about someone who stood firm in grace. <clears throat> this is, um, I don't even know, around the 1960s, Nadeja Sloboda. Sloboda. Um, she was a, uh, a Russian woman. I don't know how old she was, but she was married. How many of you women here are married? I'm trying to hit everybody now, okay? We've talked about the, the young women, talked about a young boy, we talked about John Bradford. Now we're talking about a married woman. She, uh, she was taken away from her five children. Five children were sent to an atheistic boarding school. Her husband was left alone. She was in jail. Let me just read. In prison, Sister Sloboda told other prisoners about Christ. You know, she had prison now. For this, she was confined into an unheated, isolated cell where she had to sleep on the cold concrete floor without a mattress. Prisoners find it impossible to sleep in such conditions. Even the walls are too cold to lean against comfortably. Some report that by standing with just their forehead touching the wall, they could manage to sleep enough to survive for a few days. In other words, the concrete is so cold all around, you don't have anything. If you can lean up like this, you can sleep standing up to get enough sleep to endure for a couple days. This is Nadeja. She's Sister Sloboda was kept in a cell for two months. Not only that, but during the day, she was put to hard labor with other prisoners. The communists expected that the lack of sleep combined with the hard labor would completely ruin her health and break her resolve to stand for her faith. Yet she never weakened. And everybody asked her, how can you endure it? You know what she said? I stood firm in God's grace. Okay, She didn't say it with those words, but listen what she said. But that's the reason I'm telling the story, right? Because it illustrates my point. She said, I fall asleep on the cold concrete floor 
trusting in God, and it becomes warm around me. I rest in the arms of God. That's standing firm in grace. It's going to sleep and trusting that God is going to, going to help. I just want you to think in your own life, where is the area that you need particular grace? Where is your area of suffering? You know, all of Peter's hearers weren't facing all of these difficulties, but each of them had their own particular difficulties in which they were struggling to stand. And where do you need to stand firm in His grace? Your flesh? Maybe your flesh is pulling you someplace. Maybe your friends? Maybe your friends are a bad influence in your life. Bad company corrupts good morals. Maybe that's where you need to get away. Maybe your government. Maybe for you, there's something there. Maybe your job. Maybe for you, there's something in your job. Maybe your family. I want you even right now just to think about one. Where is your area of suffering? Where is your area where you need to stand firm on the grace of God? And when Peter exhorted us and testified to us, what did he exhort and testify to? He says, right, continue to do what is right and you might suffer for it. So trust the grace of God to do what's right. Trust the grace of God then to carry you through the difficulties that come about because of being right. Just think of one area. Where is it you need to be strong in grace? Where do you need to stand firm? Even take a moment now. I want you to bow your heads. Take a moment. We're not finished yet. We soon will be. Take a moment. Think about the particular area of life, one or two, where you're finding your suffering right now. Just give it to God. God, help me to stand firm. And may God in His grace give you strength to stand firm. Amen. Lastly, real quick, real brief, love one another. Verses 13 and 14. She was in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. She was in Babylon, probably as a reference to a church where Peter wrote this letter. Probably not real Babylon because no record of him being there in Babylon at that time was pretty nothing. Babylon probably pulling from the imagery of the Old Testament talking about how the church now resides in pagan lands. It's become a light and beacon for the truth. I'm here in Babylon. Mark is with Peter. Mark is the same one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. There's an intimate connection between Mark and Peter. That's why many say Mark, when he wrote his, his Gospel, was heavily influenced by Peter who helped tell him all the inside scoop of that. These men are great friends. Mark is sending his Peter as well. So we have a church, individuals sending greetings to scattered believers. And I simply say this, sending your greetings is an expression of love. So did I mention my fourth point? Love one another. Did I mention that or not? Love one another. It's an expression of love when you send your greetings, right? Don't we do this? You're talking to someone you know they're going to meet and find out some uh, friend of yours. What do you say? Tell them hi for me. Tell them that I'm thinking about them. It's an expression of love. And that's taking place there in verse 13. From both those in Babylon and Mark with Peter 
perhaps probably in Rome, sending greetings. And then in verse 14, Peter encourages another expression of love. Greet one another with a... of love. It's a culture of Peter's day, right? They used to kiss each other. Still takes place today sometimes. I, I went to Jake Schwartz's wedding back in January, I think it was, Yvonne. We were out in California, and Jake married Olya, who's a, a Russian girl. And uh, as a result, there are many Russians who came. High Russian population in Sacramento, many came there. I happened to meet uh, Olya's father, who speaks very good English, but he does have an accent. You can I can't imitate a Russian accent, but if I could, I would. And so I'm meeting him, right? They were getting right to church, and we're meeting him right outside there, and, and he's talking to me, and all of a sudden, someone comes up kind of beside him, and he looks, <gasps> and then they smack on the lips. I was like, what? 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 <laughs> What did I just see? No romantic intuition. It's just how they do it. How they do it in Russia. It's how they did it back in um, biblical times. It's not going to fly at Rock Valley Bible Church, okay? (laughs) Phil Gusky, I love you, but that's not happening, okay? Your goatee is too much for me or something. (laughs) The point's well made, though. There needs to be a physical expression of love. I want to read Wayne Grudem at this point has an excellent summary in his commentary about this. He says, It's much harder to get mad at someone you've just hugged or kissed. Right? And it's much easier to feel accepted in a fellowship which has been given such a warm welcome. Phillips translates this phrase, Give each other a handshake all around. But Wayne Grudem says, That's far too distant and formal. Probably a holy hug would come closer to fulfilling Peter's intention. And it should be a genuine expression of love in Christ. How many people you hugged today? I was conscious of it, so I know I hugged about five or six guys today, right? You can just do the side hug, okay? Just put your arm up behind them. You can do that. But you know what? That's better than a handshake. It's an expression of love and care. Well, we have one last phrase. It really isn't tied to anything. It's just Peter's last last exhortation, his last blessing. It is a benediction. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Amidst immense suffering, you you need peace. And here it's just an expression. May God's peace... Come to you who are who are in Christ. And that's that's my heart for all of us. That the peace of God might might come into our hearts, comfort us in these days. Next week, we're Frank Yonke's gonna preach next week. Second Corinthians nine, right? Second Corinthians eight. One to fifteen. That'll be in the weekly word. We'll have some kind of question for you to look at there. But the week after that, Second Peter. We're diving straight in. And uh hope you're excited for it. I am. Um I've been spending my days in Second Peter. It's much have been in First Peter. So let's pray and we'll trust the Lord. We'll sing one last song that really expresses what we need to do. So, <clears throat> Lord, I thank you, thankful for your grace. And as Peter ends here, that you are going to be the one who strengthens us and establishes us, perfects us, confirms us. It's by your grace, and I pray that Rock Valley Bible Church be grace people. 
Extending grace, giving grace, experiencing grace, because that is our salvation from first to last. It is You who chose us before the foundation of the world in Your grace. You who called us to Yourself in Your grace. You who keep us today in Your grace. And You who will give us this inheritance that we don't deserve in Your grace. So help us, Lord, as we close First Peter, to, to suffer well. And I know that we will suffer well as we fix our gaze day by day with each passing moment upon the One who saved us, loved us, upon our inheritance, upon the glory of, of heaven. And so in that, Lord, we do trust. May you bless us in these days and help us. We need Your help greatly. In Christ's name, Amen.